thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a joy to be back with the Saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church with this opportunity to share the Word of God. Thank you, Brother Roger, for last week. Uh, but it is a joy to be back. Uh, th- this past Wednesday, uh, I mentioned this earlier, but we started a six-week course on how to study the Bible. And I highly encourage you to join us for the rest of those sessions. But one of the things that we learned about was the importance of breaking down everything into detail in the biblical text to help us get a better understanding of what's going on in the text. For example, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to put it on the screen. Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. Now we looked at verses one through three, but just look at this first verse. It says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shizlev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, Looking at this verse doesn't give us a whole lot of excitement. We might just say, okay, well, something went down with Nehemiah at this time in this place. End of story, right? But as we really study the text and we start to look at the context and asking questions and looking up answers, we see that all of what follows in Nehemiah makes more sense when we understand that this is happening in the 20th year of uh, the Persian king Artaxerxes and that Israel is in uh, captivity. They're not, uh, they're not their own nation at this point. That Nehemiah, though a Jew by birth, has been put in a position of influence because he's a king cupbearer. He's there in Susa, the citadel. And now Nehemiah is there in that fortified area. So... I say all that because just in a quick glance through a seemingly ordinary verse of scripture, there's actually a whole lot of meaning going on in just that little verse. I bring this up for a couple of reasons that are important as we get into our text from 1 Samuel. First, I bring this up because we need to know and have it seared in our minds that every verse of scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, excuse me, is God's very word for us. And so we shouldn't be seeking to gloss over the parts that we may not understand or might not seem interesting or might even seem contradictory to what we believe. I assure you, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Every verse, even the verses that seem pretty ordinary, The second reason I bring this up is to illustrate a point that we'll see more of as we walk through the text this morning. That is, God is always working. Sometimes we may see extraordinary things, but very often life is ordinary. But even still, God is working his extraordinary plan of redemption through ordinary means. Allow me to give you an example. There was a boy who was called into ministry. He decides to go to seminary to have a better understanding of God's word and how to share it with others. And then the boy graduates from seminary. He gets his resume together and he sends it out to the churches. The church receives his resume, seems to like the candidate, eventually calls the boy to be the next pastor of the church. And all that is very ordinary, right? Decided to get a job, got a degree, send a resume, accepted a call, started work. That's a very cut and dry story, right? But when we dive beneath the details, beneath the surface, to see the details, we see some incredible things. You see that that boy 
had a youth minister who left to be the pastor at the same church that that boy is now applying to. That new pastor had been at that church years before as a youth singing in a youth choir. That that church would be supporting a missionary who coached a softball team where the boy's mother played some years prior. The church's previous pastor's mother was the nurse who delivered the new pastor's wife when she was born some 20 years ago. That's all I'm saying. If you haven't decided or if you haven't picked up on what I'm talking about here, I'm describing the sovereign connections the Lord used to facilitate what has been the highest honor of my lifetime, becoming the pastor of the flock here at Durban Memorial Baptist Church. These sovereign connections helped my transition in coming here and fostering relationships to cultivate a healthy community in the church. Now, I don't bring this up because I think I am particularly special. In fact, it is quite the opposite. I bring this up because I wholeheartedly believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I believe if you know the Lord and you look deeply at your, uh, at your life, you were to look through all the things that you have been through, your past circumstances, you would see how God is working all of them together and walking with you through them. I truly believe that God has brought you to this place in this time for his particular reason. For some of you, that may be to hear the call of repentance. For others, it may be for encouragement and in service to the Lord. I am not a prophet. We're going to talk about prophets today. I'm not a prophet. I cannot tell you exactly why you are here right now, but I can say with utter certainty It may have seemed like a very ordinary thing to open the door of your house, to get in the car, to drive into the parking lot, to park and walk in this morning. But God is working through the ordinary to accomplish his extraordinary will. And you are here this morning for a reason. With that in mind, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. We started in chapter 8 a couple weeks ago with Israel asking Samuel to give them a king. And so they would look like the rest of the nations. That's why they wanted a king. And then in chapter nine, we're introduced to Saul. Thank you again, Brother Roger, who spoke with us last week about that introduction and gave some of the warning signs we should have seen in Saul uh, uh, in that time there before he became king of Israel. We'll see some more concerns today with Saul as we walk through this series. But for this moment, I just want to highlight how ordinary everything was in the beginning of chapter 9, feeding into where we're going to pick up today. Saul's introduction in Scripture. When you get to 1 Samuel chapter 9, what we looked at last week, Saul's introduction begins by a farmer losing some donkeys. Now, I've worked on a cattle farm before. I can tell you this is a pretty normal thing. They get out, right? Larry, <laughs> very often come in and you'll say, man, I just had to go wrestle down the cows, right? Uh, I don't guess you wrestle, but you know what I'm saying. The cattle get out. You got to go get them and you bring them back and you put them in the pasture. The few times I've hopped in my truck to go gather some cattle, I've never thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be a historic moment. I'm just going to get the cows, right? It's likely That Saul wasn't thinking that when he went out to go get these donkeys, that a kingdom was coming. It was just another ordinary task for the tall, handsome farmer from the tribe of Benjamin. It was just a very ordinary day. 
But again, God is doing extraordinary work even in the ordinary. As Saul went out to find the donkeys, he would be introduced to Samuel. Samuel was told by God that he was going to be finding the king who would be the ruler over God's people. Or finding the one who would be the ruler over God's people. And Samuel sees Saul and knows this is the guy. And so he invites him in to have a meal together in a banquet hall. And Saul at this point must have been pretty bewildered, pretty wild that he was just going out looking for some donkeys. And now he's eating with the prophet. He had just been looking and now he's with this judge, this seer, the prophet Samuel. Where we pick up this morning, Samuel has asked Saul to have a private moment with him. And as we walk through this text, I want to highlight the sovereignty of God to work through ordinary and extraordinary ways, all for his plan and purpose. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, verse 1 in the ESV, and I'll talk about that here in a moment, says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Uh, And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, before we get into the particulars of the text, we need to have a Bible study lesson really quickly. I, I think it's important to note something about the structure of this verse. If you were reading along in another translation other than the ESV, uh, you would see that 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 is a lot shorter. Okay, Most translations simply end with saying, uh, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his inheritance? And that stuff in the middle is kind of truncated uh, out of there. It's not included there. I I don't want to spend too much time here this morning, but you should note that this is because the team that worked on putting together the ESV used the Septuagint. That's the Greek, uh, uh, early Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so... The earliest Hebrew texts we have don't actually have that stuff in the middle there, those extra verses. And so uh, that's why most English translations don't have them. But for whatever reason, the ESV chose to add them. I say this because you should know. I don't want you to be caught off guard if you're putting two translations side by side. We're not trying to hide anything. But we do need to ask ourselves when we see these types of differences between the translations. We, we find these different texts and critical questions. We need to ask ourselves, does it change the meaning of the text? And in this case, it absolutely does not change the meaning of the text. I only mention it so you won't be caught off guard if you look at these side by side, if you're reading along in something else. So I want to get into the actual meat of what is going on here. In verse 1, we see Saul being anointed King of Israel, really. Now, this was not a public declaration. The rest of the country was yet to know that this was their king. But nonetheless, Samuel is following the Lord in declaring Saul to be the ruler of the people of Israel. And as a side note, I mentioned this before, but anointing is a physical act that symbolizes a greater dedication. James chapter 5 tells us uh, that the sick are to call for the elders to come to their homes. The pastors there and in the church and have them anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that there is special power in olive oil as it's dashed across a hat. Rather, it is a symbol reminding us, pointing us to consecrating this situation to the Lord. So in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when Saul, uh, Samuel anoints and kisses Saul, there was no magic in the oil. Rather, it was a symbol that Samuel recognizes that this is the man God has called to be the first king of Israel. Remember, we're seeing all throughout this story the sovereignty of God to accomplish his will. 
If you want to refer back to 1 Samuel 9, 16, you'd pick up that what we are seeing here in 1 Samuel 10, 1 is the accomplishment of what God told Samuel was coming. We're seeing that working together. Samuel's not acting rogue here when he does this, when he anoints uh, uh, Saul. He's the emissary of the Lord. Look at the words he even uses in the anointing. He says, has not the Lord anointed you? Sure, Samuel was the vessel through which uh, the, the Lord was accomplishing this job, but it happened by the providence of the Lord. He was acting on behalf of and for the Lord. Saul may have been surprised when he lost his donkeys. Samuel may have been surprised to see the tall Benjamite walk into town, but God was not surprised by any of the details going on in the story. This is his will unfolding before us. And while God was in charge of choosing Saul to be king, we're also reminded that these people, these are God's people. It's still his people. Saul might be the king, but it's still the Lord's people. Roger and I have pointed out for the last two weeks that the Israelite people were rejecting God. Uh, Roger, I believe, rightly said that they were uh, proclaiming they would rather have a man as king. Uh, It was one of the points last week. And then they will come to regret their declaration later. But look at what Prophet Samuel says as he is proclaiming Saul to be king. He says, the Lord has anointed you to be prince or ruler over his heritage. That is, there at the end of verse 1, the Lord has appointed you to be prince over his heritage, over his inheritance. The amazing idea here is that though God is assigning Saul to be the king of this people, he is not transferring over the ownership of the people. A heritage is an indisputable possession that cannot be transferred to another. Israel is called God's heritage time and time again throughout the Old Testament. So in giving the people the king they asked for, God is not surrendering the claim he has over his people. So here in just the first verse of 1 Samuel 10, we see the absolute sovereignty of God. But this is just the beginning of his sovereignty in this story. Over the next paragraph, we're shown three more signs of sovereignty. For the sake of time, I'm going to kind of paraphrase these for us this morning as we walk through them. The first sign you see next is Rachel's tomb. After anointing Saul, Samuel tells Saul that he will meet two men and they will tell him his donkeys have been found. uh, And now Saul's dad's looking for him. And all of this would take place at the tomb of Rachel. This is another one of those times where a quick reading will cause us to glance over the amazingness of God. We should first note that 1 Samuel 10, 9 shows us all these signs, the three signs we're going to look at here. All of these things happen. So first of all, it would just be amazing for Saul to walk up to the tomb after meeting with this Samuel guy and seeing things happen exactly like he was told they were going to unfold. He was probably bewildered, as bewildered as the disciples were when they picked up that cult for Jesus to have his triumphal entry. That's another situation where things unfold exactly as they were said to unfold. So the fact that this happened as it said it was going to happen, that's amazing in and of itself. But if we're not careful, we're going to glance over something very important. We'll gloss over the finer details of this location. We read Rachel's tomb. We might think, okay, that's just a regular place. That's another geographic marker. It's another check on the map. But this location is a reminder of the greatness of God. You see, immediately following Saul's anointing as king, 
we're reminded of Israel's origins. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, the mother of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe that, uh, that, that uh, Saul comes from. This Rachel was married to the man who wrestled with God and had his name changed to Israel. The same Israel to whom God promised a nation and a company shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. That's the exact words, some of the promises God made to that Jacob, to that Israel. So the new king of Israel had the sovereignty of God confirmed for him at the tomb of his tribe's matriarch. This is really cool. This connection is intentional. As we read this story, we should be seeing how God is working to accomplish his will throughout all of history. This isn't a a solo story. It's woven into his plan of redemption all through seemingly normal places like a tomb. But Saul would be given more signs of God's sovereignty. If you continue on in the verses there, you see the Oak of Tabor. The Oak of Tabor. After being told that his donkeys were found and his father was now looking for him, Saul would continue on to the Oak of Tabor near Bethel. Verses uh, 2 and 4 show us that while Saul is there, a group of men would come by and, uh, or verses 3 and 4, excuse me, uh, would come by and give him some bread. In and of itself, not a very extraordinary thing. But once again, we got to look beyond the surface at what's going down here. We've already established that Samuel is telling Saul that these things will happen, and then they do. That's awesome. That's pretty astounding. But if you look back into 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7, Saul mentions to his servants that they're out of bread. They don't have any bread. When they come across this group at the Oak of Tabor, they're presented with exactly what they need. An ordinary encounter of meeting men on the side of the road was the way in which God provided for Saul's need in that moment. I think sometimes we miss the profound truth encapsulated in that simple song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Whenever we are blessed, whenever our needs are met, our response should not be, oh, well, that was neat. When our needs are met, our response should not be, oh, man, that was lucky. Our response should be, Praise be to God from whom all blessings flow. It is amazing that our God would provide for us and that he's the one who deserves all the credit. Even when the means, even when it seems very simple, even when the means are mundane, God gets the glory. Once again, in this instance, the location is an important uh, factor and it draws us back to God's promises to his people. The Oak of Tabor is not mentioned elsewhere by name in scripture, but it's highly likely that this is the same oak that is talked about near Bethel in Genesis chapter 35, verse 8. Bethel is the place in which Jacob rested and in a dream heard God say, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. The reminder of being at this oak near Bethel, God is providentially taking Saul on a history lesson through God's covenantal promises to his people. It's awesome. Look now, let's look at the third sign. Gibeah Elohim. After getting the bread from the travelers, Saul would continue on to Gibeah Elohim. In that city, he will find a garrison of Philistines, we read. Now, Gibeath Elohim doesn't have the same historical covenantal connections that the other two locations have, but there's still a lot to see here nonetheless. 
Instead of looking backwards, now we're here to look forward from this sign. The, the presence of the Philistine garrison reminds us of what, jo- uh, what Saul's job is. These Philistines were clearly within the borders of Israel. These were enemies setting up camp in Israel. They were not respecting the nation. Further, Gibeath Elohim means the hill of God. It would have been an insult for these heathens to be setting up a camp in such a place. The Israelites wanted an earthly king so that they would be like and be respected by the other nations like the Philistines. But what would farmer Saul know to do here? He had never run out enemy armies before. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. But as you progress through verses 5 and 6, you see God was going uh, to do something amazing uh, in this situation. There would be a group of prophets that come down the road. When that happens, the spirit of the Lord, it says, will rush upon Saul and he will prophesy with them. When you look at verses 9 and 10 again, you see all of this played out as Samuel said it would. What an incredible day it had to be for the farmer from the little tribe of Benjamin to see all of this stuff happening in front of him. He started out looking for lost donkeys and ended up being given a new heart, promised, uh, preparing him to be king and prophesying with a band of prophets. The greatness of God to weave everything together for his purposes is on full display in this three signs that we looked at. We should all at this point have our jaws dropped at the mastery of God. To weave all of these things together is absolutely incredible from our finite human perspective. What's even more incredible to me in this story is God's use of broken people. Broken people like Saul to accomplish his will. You see, if we were to stop right here, we might think all is well in Israel. Saul is now a king. He's out prophesying with the prophets. That's really cool. He's been given a new heart. Some take that to mean that Saul was saved by grace. However, when we look at the greater context and the full life of Saul, I'm not sure that's what we should be taking away from the story. But God doesn't need us to determine King Saul's salvation. We're called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We'll leave that to the Lord. But for now, what we know for sure is that through his power, God equips the inexperienced, unlettered Saul to be able to assume kingly kingly responsibilities. Saul was given three signs, and then three signs come to pass. But he's also given two instructions. These don't turn out so well. Let's look at the instructions, starting in verse 7. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Saul was instructed first to do what your hand finds to do after all these things come to pass. It appears likely that this is a turn of phrase that has a direct connection to taking military action. That's how it's used elsewhere in scripture, uh, most explicitly as Judges chapter 9 verse 33. But it seems that Saul's first instruction was to deal with the Philistine garrison that was there at Gibeath Elohim. That would have been a scary moment for the uh, former farmer. But remember, he's been equipped to do this kind of work. Then we see the second instruction in the next verse. 
Uh, Samuel tells him to go down before me to Gilgal uh, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you should do. So once again, when we look deeper at this text, this bolsters the theory that I mentioned there that Saul was supposed to take care of the Philistines. Why? Because a peace offering was to be uh, given. And that was something that likely follows a military victory like it did when the ark returns from the Philistines in uh, previous chapters there in 1 Samuel. It would be a moment also for Saul to be publicly declared king before the people of Israel. But while the three signs that Samuel said would happen occur, the obedience for Saul to follow these instructions does not. If the instructions had been followed, verses 11 and following would have been uh, different. It would have shown a battle. It would have shown him waiting, and then it would have shown a victory party. But instead of celebrating a national victory, we see confusion hit the land. What do I mean? Look at verses 11 through 13. All the people, when all the people who, who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. After Saul prophesied with the prophets, he was instructed to turn his attention to the Philistines. It's clear that he didn't. And the people uh, don't know what to do with Saul's behavior with the prophets. They're confused. Questions abound about Saul in this situation. What's he doing with this band of prophets? Who is their leader? But no one finds any answers to these questions. There's just confusion. In fact, asking if Saul is among the prophets becomes a pastime in the area. They start all talking about it, gossiping about it with one another. It becomes a proverb in the area. This could have been a moment in which the people recognized that the new behavior in Saul was because he was going to lead them and be taking care of their enemies. But instead, everyone's just left here to ask, what's this guy doing? It's kind of anticlimactic. At least their reaction is to what could have been a major moment. Instead of moving on the Philistines, verse 13 concludes that Saul goes off to the high place. It's kind of weird. When Saul gets to the high place, we see that he's met by his uncle. And his uncle wants to know where he's been. We once again begin to see the insufficiency of Saul. He doesn't lie, but he doesn't tell the whole truth either. Look at verse 14. Saul's uncle said to him, where'd you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And so Saul mentions nothing of those amazing things that had happened that day. Nothing about the prophets. Nothing about the three signs that came true. He goes back to the donkeys. But the mentioning of the, the judge and the prophet Samuel doesn't go unnoticed by Saul's uncle. Look at verses 15 and 16. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel spoke, he did not tell him anything. Why didn't Saul tell his uncle everything? Why did he mention the donkeys without mentioning anything else? Those are questions at this point in the story we're left to just wonder. and we, 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 don't, we don't have any concrete answers to that. It's possible that he knows he failed to follow the prophet's instruction. And so in his shame, he didn't want to bring it up. I think we can all relate to that. But whatever the reasoning is, Saul doesn't discuss the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had spoken. 
As we come to a close this morning, I want to focus on that word kingdom. You see, Israel wanted to be a powerful kingdom. They wanted a king to lead them against the other nations. But we all need to recognize just whose kingdom is being referred to in verse 16. Saul may have been anointed king, but one, he wasn't a particularly good king. And two, it still wasn't his kingdom. Throughout the entirety of this story that we've kind of rushed through in some ways this morning, throughout this whole story, we've seen God was in control of it all. God made the promises to Jacob to bring the kingdom. God anointed Saul to be king. God orchestrated the people to be there to provide for Saul's needs. God is the one who empowered the farmer to be king in the first place. In this series that we've entitled Heroes and Villains, it's not the tall and toned King Saul that is the hero. He was just as dependent upon God as anyone else. The only real hero in the grand narrative of, of redemptive history is God. Even in the time that we are looking at here in the series, God is the one redeeming a people, even through the actions of other broken people like Saul. We can clearly see his sovereign hand at every turn of the page, every stroke of the pen. And that same sovereign God has had it to where you are here this morning. We got to ask ourselves at this point, why? What is God's purpose in this? Well, we know from Scripture that our purpose in life is for his glory and our good. If you know the one true God of the Bible, then this morning is a reminder to all of us that our lives are operating in his hands. It's a reminder. Give him thanks for all of the blessings that he has given you. But if you've never acknowledged true faith in the one true God of the Bible, then it is my hope that God has orchestrated your being here this morning, you're listening along with us this morning to hear the message of repentance and restoration, to hear you are a sinner separated from the holy God by your sin, but in his great love, God the Father sent God the Son to live, die, and rise again so that all who believe in the mighty name of Jesus would not perish but have everlasting life and be reconciled unto the holy God, given eternal life and sealed by God the Holy Spirit. That's the message of Scripture, that while we were still sinners, God loved us, and we know because Christ died for us. All of it woven together for our good and his glory. If any of these concepts cause you to ask questions, I'm asking you to respond today. I would love to have a conversation with you after this. You need to know God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You need to know you're not the hero of your story, but Christ is the hero of the world. I would love to explain more of that to you this morning. You can come forward in this next home. You can find me afterwards. I don't care, whatever it may be, but do not delay. I believe God has us here in this place, in this little corner of Clay's Ferry for a reason. May we glorify him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, Lord. I pray that you were 
honored in what was spoken today, Lord, that we would see how you are weaving everything together for your good, for your plan, for your redemption. Lord, we know that in the garden you promised victory. And we know that through Jesus, victory is here. Lord, may we repent from our sins. May we seek to be pure in heart, single-minded in heart, completely focused and dedicated on you. For you are worthy. You are good. When we see how you are working all things, Lord, may we just praise your name. You go so beyond our understanding. We're just left in reverential fear and awe of your glory. May we sing your praises today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church Podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.